I hope you are feeling the, the impact of our summer in the Psalms. Nicholas Thomas Wright said, the Psalms are inexhaustible and deserve to be read, said, sung, chanted, whispered, learned by heart, and even shouted from the rooftops. They express all the emotions we are likely to feel, and including some emotions we hope we may not. And they lay them bare, raw and open in the presence of God, like a golden retriever bringing to its master's feet every strange object it finds in the field. This morning, our call to worship was from Psalm 42 and Psalm 124. Our confession of faith was Psalm 91, and as we read through that, you probably recognize that some of that was some messianic verbiage that Christ himself um, said and embraced. We sang two of the psalms, so we're starting to sing the psalms now. We sang Psalm 42, a rendition of Psalm 42, and Psalm 107. We're going to continue to do that. And now our time in the Word is from Psalm 42. So our summer in the psalms is in full swing, and we also have some resources on the table there. We've got C.S. Lewis's reflection on the psalms that we're selling for $9. It's just to cover our cost but I just recommend and suggest you pick it up. Uh, it's really good, and uh, it'll serve as a really good companion to our summer in the Psalms. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 42 uh, this morning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, now we do thank you for this, your holy word. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to convict us and convince us of its power, truth, and meaning that we might leave this place transformed, different than the way we came in all for the glory of your name, that we might be to conform to the likeness and image of your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name, amen. 
Our psalm this morning is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. And it contains some of the most beautifully sad words in all of Scripture. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Just by a show of hands, how many of you know that passage? It's beautifully sad. It's powerful. As the deer pants for flowing streams, what an image. So my soul pants and thirsts for God. The writer of this psalm feels far from God. If, if, you, could, if you could call this psalm, if you could give it a title, you could call it Far From God. The headline above this psalm says, A Maskil of Ko- the Sons of Korah. A maskil is, maskil comes from the Hebrew word sakal, meaning instruction. So it's a kind of lament prayer that is meant to instruct. And it says of the sons of Korah, the, Korah, the Korahites were doorkeepers and singers in the temple during the reigns of David and Solomon. After Solomon's reign, the nation split during a civil war with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the southern kingdom was where the temple in Jerusalem was. And the northern kingdom set up counterfeit religion, idolatrous worship, and their own temple, so to speak. And so part of political power in those days, because there was no separation of religion and politics like there is now, is to monopolize religion to keep people loyal. And so the northern kingdom set up false worship in Mount Gerizim. You may remember the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well, and she was asking about where God was to be worshipped, and Jesus corrected her as a Samaritan woman. And he said, us Jews know where God is to be worshipped. That's in Jerusalem. But the days are coming, of course, when God will neither be worshipped in this place nor in Jerusalem, for God is a spirit. You remember that passage? And so the northern kingdom is steeped in idolatry and set up its own counterfeit religion on Mount Gerizim. And it had none of the glory and the grandeur of the temple in Jerusalem because, of course, that's where the very presence of God was. Now, the book of Psalms and Chronicles suggests that worship in the temple was a completely awe-inspiring experience. Psalm 150 says that worshipers praise God with the trumpet, the lyre, the harp, and the tambourine, with dancing, strings, pipe, and clashing cymbals. Just image that scene for a moment. It, It almost kind of sounds like, you know, for... For us, kind of, you know, well-behaved people in church, like sheer pandemonium. But that was what it was like at the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, they really got down. Second Chronicles 29 tells us that during Hezekiah's reign, the people worshipped at the temple with blood sacrifices. 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs with singing instruments, and with thank and drink offerings. Now, the likely occasion for the lament of this psalm is that the writer, during the Civil War, has been displaced and now finds himself, before he was a temple singer in Jerusalem, 
But now he's in the northern kingdom. He's been displaced by this civil war, and he's estranged from Jerusalem. He's estranged from the temple, and for all intents and purposes, he's estranged from God. And he reminisces how I would go with the crowd and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Looking back on on the, the exuberant celebration of worship in the temple and his role in that worship as, as sort of a singer and a praise leader, leading a throng, a crowd of people who are celebrating festival, singing to the Lord, and his place at the front of the pack, leading them in song. What a glorious memory to recall, and also a painful one, because now that's impossible for him. He's far away from home, he's far from the temple, he's far from God. The glory days are gone. This psalm is a lament over a life that is no longer as it used to be. If you're young, maybe your 20s, your teens, your 20s, maybe your 30s, the glory days are likely ahead of you. Right? Your, your best days are sort of ahead of you. But often into middle age and old age, deep sadness sets in at what once used to be. That doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to a lot of us. In youth, you know, the world seems wide open. The possibilities are endless. Everything is in front of you. But as time goes on and you're exposed to the darkness of this fallen world and the pain that often life sort of you know, dishes out, you're exposed to disappointments. And when disappointments happen, it can feel like losing God. Not belief in God, but the experience that God is close. And that's what's happening here is not the loss of belief in God, but because of some really hard circumstances that are really tearing his heart apart, there is the experience of losing the sense of God's presence. Has anyone ever experienced that before? Or maybe you didn't completely lose your faith and become like an atheist for a while, but you lost the sense of God's like, presence with you, that God was with you. And I have to tell you, I, I've been there, and it's like a horrifying experience because it feels like abandonment. And it's a really painful experience. And it's a confusing experience. Well, that's what's happening here in Psalm 42. It's a loss of the sense of the presence of God. Now, I don't believe that God ever stops being close to his chosen elect children, but sometimes we have to grow up spiritually. Because we can, attend, we can tend to associate God's love with comfort. We can, we can tend to identify a feeling that God is present with us with comfort and comfortable circumstances when things are going well. We often feel like God's close if we're healthy, if we're happy, if we're materially satisfied, or if things are generally going well for us. We can feel like God is close. Or if God isn't close, we just don't care because everything's going fine. 
or going well. Or we can take God for granted. But God will not be taken for granted. I mean, if there's one thing like we learn in the scriptures is that like God will not be taken for granted. And perhaps that's exactly what's going on as we experience at times a sense of the loss of God's presence in our lives. They say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think for us as believers, as God's people, that has to be true, doesn't it? Doesn't that have to be true? We can sometimes take God for granted. Johnny Erickson Tata in her book, When God Weeps, says that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God hates that at times we feel far from him, but he often lets us linger in that place to develop an ache for him. God hates us thinking that he's ever abandoned us, but he gives us time to linger in that pain so that we can long for his presence. And God hates thinking that he has in any way forgotten us, but he allows us that inner turmoil and wrestling to seek his face with tears and prayers. Why? Because he wants us to thirst for him. God wants us to thirst for him. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, he says. My soul thirsts for God. There's an apt metaphor. Thirst is an apt metaphor for the sense of not feeling God's presence. Because just as the body can't live without water, God wants us to realize as well that our souls can't live without him. My soul thirsts for God. Thirst is this amazing mechanism we have that keeps us alive. It keeps us from dying of dehydration. I'm into wilderness hiking, and I like wilderness survival. I like wilderness camping. So um, I don't like pulling up in my car at the safe camping spot with like a paved parking place for my car and a fire ring. I don't like that. I like hiking into the woods and making my own camp spot because one, I like the remoteness of it and not being bugged by other people. And two, I like the idea that I am pushing myself sort of on the verge of my abilities like as a man to survive. And so I, I just, I like that. Um, I grew up in the city. I never went camping my entire life and something happened like in my mid-30s. I had like this, like the call of the wild. So I had to learn about how to survive in the wilderness and they have like this rule of threes you know, um, you can't survive without oxygen for more than three minutes. You can't survive without food for more than three weeks. But you cannot survive without water for more than three days. And so the one thing you always do when you go camping, especially in the, in the woods, if you're not going to be by a stream, you pack your water in. Because if you run out of water, it's game over, especially if you get lost. And people die all the time because they don't have water. They haven't thought about it. And so for the psalmist, the thirst he has is this sensing that God's presence is gone. It, it feels like dying. This, this the image of thirst, it's, it's like, you know, panting for just a drop of water as he longs for the presence of God. He feels like he's dying. 
You know, God is not this remote, nebulous, active force, but a personal being who wants to be known. God wants to be known personally. He doesn't want us just to know about him, which is a trap we can fall into because like, we like theology and stuff. Right? We learn about God, but God doesn't want us just to learn about him. He wants us to know him. He wants to be known by us, and he himself knows us. He wants us to come thirsty to a vast well of refreshment that he is in, in, in himself. He wants us to come thirsty to him because in him is a vast well of refreshment. Salvation. It's not even heaven or eternal life. It's him. It's God himself. It's knowing him. It's being in a relationship with him. Those are the fringe benefits, eternal life and heaven. Salvation is knowing God. It's knowing him. Now, in this verse, something, in this verse, something really interesting happens. If you notice, as we read through the psalm, he, he goes into sort of a dialogue with himself. It, it's sort of a, uh, engages in, in his discouragement and despair, he engages in self-communion, a sort of self-communion in verses five through 11, and he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down? Why are you so full of heaviness? We just sang it in Psalm 42. It's powerful. Why are you so full of heaviness, O oh, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. One of the hardest parts about this sort of self-dialogue is the reality that often when we hunger and thirst the most for God, God is utterly silent. He can be. In fact, he often is. And God allows us that space of silence for inner wrestling and a voice from within, our inner being, to speak the truth to us. That the sort of desperation that is sort of clawing and reaching desperately just to feel some sense of the presence of God often gives us space and time with ourselves because we have to remind ourselves of what is true. You know, your brain is this, this repository of information, right? Um, uh, I remember taking my wife and kids to the Westminster Catechism some years ago, and Maribel about halfway through said, we need to start over because I, I can't recall, I can't bring to re you know, remembrance any of it. And I said, no, no, that's not the way it works. The way memories work or information works is something has to trigger it. So if someone has to ask you a question about something and the information that is deep in you somehow gets drawn up. That's the way the brain works. It's not like a, you know, a database where you just, you know, justification, oh, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it can work that way, but that's usually not how it works. And so our knowledge of God, our deep relationship of him, and the experiences that we have with God are stored up in our inner being. And often when we are desperate because we don't feel a sense of God's presence, we have to draw on that. And the Holy Spirit helps us do that. But that's what's happening here. He's talking to himself. And what does he say? Therefore, I remember you. My soul is cast down. I'll praise God again. 
I'll experience God's presence again, yet again, once more. And this is the point where uncertainty about the future and even the present, the psalmist is able to say, as we should also and can say when we have those inner wrestlings, this too shall pass. This doesn't say that here in the psalm, but that's essentially what's happening. The psalmist is telling himself, this is not going to last. I don't, know if, you know, I don't know if they had mirrors back in those days, but essentially it's, he's, he's looking at himself in the mirror saying, why are you sad? This is going to pass. The, the, the joy and the exuberance you once felt at God's presence, you will feel again. And so there's self-communion. He's talking with himself. He's depressed, but his faith isn't shaken. It's not a loss of faith. He's in pain, but he hasn't given up hope. Dejected, but hasn't lost confidence that he'll once again experience the presence of God. But he still airs his grievance. And this is what he says, and this is beautiful, and these words are famous, but they're sort of a mystery. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. Now that may seem like a compliment, but it's actually a complaint. He's essentially saying that the universe is sort of conspiring against me. You know, the deep calls to the deep and they're, they're in unison in keeping me down, thrashing against me. In, in California, surfing is really big where I grew up and I wasn't a surfer but I had a lot of friends who were surfers and I went to the beach and waves often will come in sets, sets of four or six or seven and inexperienced surfers can drown if they wipe out and they're not aware that when they come up for air there's another wave and another wave and another wave gonna come on top of them. So sometimes they'll stay underwater for a while and when they come up, they're, they're not gasping for air because they may drink a bunch of water and sometimes surfers die. And it's this idea of your breakers and your waves, right? In other words, the psalmist is saying, like the floodwaters are calling out to each other to conspire against me, to keep me down. And I just wanna name that life can be that way at times, can't it? Like, like can't life be, can feel at times like a conspiracy of you know, big waves crashing on you like one after another? And if, if you haven't experienced that yet, uh, we've got some you know, of our younger folks in here today, you will. Because life can be that way. It's like a, it, can, it, can, it can feel like it's conspiring against you. That's exactly what the psalmist feels. And we have to remind ourselves, like he's reminding himself, that God is sovereign even over our troubles, right? Because like not even one speck of cosmic dust in the universe has autonomy. We think it does because it feels like that. The, the idea that some, there's rogue elements in the universe that are doing their thing while God is paying attention to something else and he's turning, oh, you know, it's like he's like, you know, let the water boil over or something. Don't we believe that God is sovereign even over our troubles? Because if you believe that, there's a reason to have comfort, right? That's, that, that's, that's, that's comforting. 
that even the troubles that come in your life, they're really God's troubles, right? He says, your waves, right? The psalmist says with confidence, he says, your waves, your waterfalls, your breakers have gone over me. Those are, they're God's waves. They're God's breakers. And God has set the limits of those waves. And God has set the limits of every trial because God is sovereign over all of it. And that causes him to have some type of comfort. And he says with confidence, therefore, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I could, I could have preached this chapter in like two to three parts over the next several weeks. I, I decided not to do that, so I had to summarize a lot in the short time we have here. But I just want to say, we'll all at some point experience the kind of deep dissatisfaction in our lives that the psalmist feels here. We'll all at some point feel forgotten by God. We'll all at some point or another feel like we've lost God. And I really think like the key to, to your faith surviving is not to pretend. Like just to be real about that fact and not say, oh no, that, that'll never happen. I'll never feel that way if I'm, if I'm living right, if I'm praying enough, if I'm reading my Bible. Like, like that's just not, that is not even the testimony of scripture. Like the Bible is like telling you, yeah, you're gonna feel this. You're gonna feel forgotten by God. You're gonna feel like God's presence is not with you at times. In fact, I mean, Jesus on the cross says, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? So that's just not reality to expect we're gonna live this life and never encounter the type of deep despair of abandonment that the psalmist feels here, that Jesus certainly felt. And it's all a part of what it means to live in this broken world and believe in God at the same time. When Jesus was facing the suffering of his death, he echoed the language of this psalm when he said in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. And none of us will escape the need that is the subject of this prayer. Right? Jesus teaches us, that those who have and understand this thirst are blessed. They're blessed because it's the thirst, it's this kind of thirst that brings us to the justifying presence of God. And Matthew 5 and 6, what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, the truth is that everybody has a thirst. Everyone. Everyone on the planet has a thirst. I, I don't want to go so far as saying that there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. Maybe. But everyone has a thirst. Everyone is thirsting for something. But blessed are those who recognize that thirst. And blessed are those whose thirst is for the very presence of God, what Jesus calls thirsting for righteousness because he says they shall be satisfied, those who thirst for righteousness. In John 4, Jesus 
In conclusion, Jesus reveals himself as a source of the water that satisfies the thirsty soul. And he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Are you thirsty this morning? Look to Jesus. Are you wrestling with not feeling the presence of God in your life like maybe you once did? Look to Jesus. Are you desperate for God's assurance that he's with you? For the comfort of knowing that God walks with you through every challenge and trial? Look to Jesus. It's in Jesus that all of our thirsts are quenched. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you now for this beautiful but sad psalm of lament, which reflects our own experience of, at times, feeling that you are not as close as we want you to be, that your presence at often times feels elusive. Father, bless us that the spirit that you put inside of us, your Holy Spirit, would stir up during these moments and that we would be able to speak to ourselves and remind ourselves of the promises of God and the truth that you will never leave us or forsake us and that though we mourn for a while, we will yet again praise God. We will hope and trust in the God of our salvation because we know you are there and you will never leave us or abandon us. And you've given us your spirit and your son as a guarantee of it. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.